So my father decided that in the American system, the decisive points, evangelistically speaking, were major universities in small towns. The small town made it feasible and the university made it important. Mm -hmm. And he then found out through a series of circumstances that Moscow, Idaho and Pullman, Washington were two small towns, eight miles apart with a major university in each one, Mm -hmm. Washington State and University of Idaho. Yeah. And so he moved there in order to have a disproportionate impact. Yeah. That that was the whole idea Mm -hmm. is disproportionate impact. And everything that's come out of Moscow is all downstream from that decision of his, whether it's Cannon Press or New St. Andrews College or Logos School or uh, Christ Church or the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches that uh, came out, you know, originated there uh, and and the ongoing application of the principles of war. Mm -hmm. So, for example, using media podcasts this is a good example of the application of mobility. Yeah. Right. So uh, the digital revolution has made it possible for us to get the word to New Zealand mm-hmm. with a click. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Nick Solheim. I'm the COO of American Moment. Um, I'm not joined by my uh, Indian friend today. He has decided to leave me uh, yet again for more fundraising travel. So um, you're, you're, you're stuck with me for today. Uh, but we are joined by a very interesting guest today, um, Pastor Douglas Wilson, who is rejoining Moment of Truth for the second time. Um, and we discussed a, a very broad range of, of interesting things. But before I get to that, this is your quick reminder to go back to AmericanMoment.org. Uh, check out all the different things we have going on. We've got a new program starting up here in the fall. Make sure you go and apply for that. Uh, if you want to get in touch with any of us uh, and and learn about how we can help you get an internship, maybe get a job in D.C., um, get better connected here and and further your career, you can go to americamoment.org slash join. If you fill out that form, a member of our team will be in touch with you to meet with you, to hear your story, to learn about the issues you're particularly passionate about. Um, and we will try to help you get the ball rolling on on your career and get good people in in government. So uh, the reason we had Pastor Wilson back on today is because we're doing an event with him actually this evening as of this recording on the Christian case for immigration restriction. Um, and the reason that we're doing that event is because the preponderance of Christian um, and Catholic groups in D.C. that do advocacy on immigration. Um, it's largely of the open borders variety um, as as many people from foreign countries into our nation as possible. We have found that there is not a really good Christian case out there for reducing immigration, both legal and illegal. And so like with everything else that American Moment does, we see a void and we do our uh, level best to to fit it. Um so we have Pastor Wilson speaking at that at that event tonight, and some of you may remember we had Pastor Wilson on the show very early on. I think it was episode 38 or 39 or something like that, almost 100 episodes ago. And we primarily focused on um, very high-level theory, uh, Kyperianism, sphere sovereignty, um, all of that, what what he thinks um, about how Christians broadly should think about um, government authority. As I've spent 
more time with Pastor Wilson and the folks out in Moscow, Idaho uh, over the last almost two years or so, um, I've come to appreciate Pastor Wilson as a uh, tactician and political thinker. And so that is the, the, the bulk of this week's episode. We focus on what makes institutions ripe for takeover versus when conservatives should innovate and start something new. We talked about um, his political evolution over time. We talked about um, why, generally speaking, ideological libertarianism is bad and you shouldn't believe in it. Um, it was a it was a very fascinating episode. Uh, he he's really one of the best thinkers uh, in in the Christian world. I would I would certainly uh, commend him to. Anyone looking to learn more about uh, theology and how it applies to uh, your jobs in D.C. or how you think about politics or the way you vote, uh, it's it's very solid stuff. You can access his blog at uh, DougWills.com. Um, and uh, yeah, just really, really fantastic episode. I always love spending time with uh, Pastor Wilson. Um, and he is the pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. He is a founding board member of Logos School, a senior fellow of theology at New St. Andrews College, and he serves as an instructor at Greyfriars Hall, a ministerial training program at Christ Church. He helped to establish the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches and has authored numerous books on classical Christian education, the family, the church, and the Reformed faith. After serving in the U.S. Navy in the submarine service, he completed a bachelor's and master's in philosophy and a bachelor's in classical studies from the University of Idaho. Pastor Wilson and his wife, Nancy, have three children and a bunch of grandkids. We will go now to Pastor Douglas Wilson. Pastor Wilson, thanks for coming on the pod. Great to be with you. Thank you. So uh, it's been a, a long time since we've had you on the show as we're pushing almost I think two years now since That's we were a long out time in, in podcast years. Yes, it is a very long time <laughs> in podcast years. We have we have a lot more listeners than we did then. I actually think to this day that is the only podcast that we've ever done without video. <laughs> it, <laughs> okay. we, 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 we flew uh, all the way out there. So now, um, you know, people get to see you uh, in, in the flesh. Um, so since it's been a long time since people have been introduced to you, um, give us the story of uh, Pastor Douglas Wilson, um, you know, where you grew up, how you ended up in Moscow, how you've kind of right. become involved in this um, a little bit of a political sphere. Give us the story. Sure. This is the telescoped or collapsed version. Uh, I call my hometown Annapolis, Maryland. I grew up in Annapolis. My father was a Naval Academy graduate. And after he got out of the Navy, he came back to Annapolis to uh, open up a literature ministry bookstore on Maryland Avenue, right outside uh, the academy. So I grew up in Annapolis. And uh, my folks moved, oh, and we I was there for the bulk of the time, spent a few years in Ann Arbor. But my parents moved out to Moscow in 1971, and I had just joined the Navy. So I joined the Navy right out of high school, and I helped them move to Moscow. That was my first glimpse of Moscow. Then I went into the submarine service for just under four years. And when I was done with my hitch in the Navy, I thought, well, I'll just declare residency where, you know, I can declare residency wherever. So I'll just do it for Idaho and go to school there, catch up with my folks, and then go on to do what I was going to do. And uh, and what I was going to do was open up a Christian bookstore in a small college town. Like that was my dad's strategy for strategic evangelism. And I'm going to go somewhere like Laramie or something like that. But uh, got married, uh, started having kids. We started uh, Logos School. Um, 
the roots went down pretty quickly. And, uh, and that is how I wound up in Moscow with the, a, a bunch of, um, ministries and opportunities uh, were, were there. Um, I, I began preaching at a small Jesus people type of church, which evolved over the, uh, over the years. Um, and we're now confessional reformed Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterian, not Lesbyterian. <laughs> <laughs> very important. Yeah, very, very important distinction. Um, and uh, so that that's it practically. I'm uh, I'm not from Idaho originally, but all my kids are. All my grandkids are. Yeah. So what is it about? Um, it's interesting. I, I I had a conversation last night with this guy who's um, he's Catholic. Uh, he's uh, involved in conservative politics in in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, works for the conservative party up there. Um, and I was mentioning that we have this event with you tomorrow. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know exactly who that is. Uh, I, I know all about Moscow, Idaho. Mm -hmm. um, the guy has never been a Protestant before, knows about you, knows about Moscow, generally right. what the what the scene is. Um, why is that? What What's going on in Moscow? What are you guys doing out there um, that has made it such a, a kind of national thing to be known about? Yeah. How come anybody knows? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. How does anybody know? Um, a lot of it goes back to a decision my father made um, when he moved there. Uh, my dad, like I mentioned, was um, a Naval Academy graduate. He took classes at the Naval War College. And in the 60s, he wrote a book called Principles of War. And uh, and what he did is he took the military principles of warfare, mobility, surprise, concentration, things like that, and applied them to spiritual warfare. How, how do military tactics apply to uh, the spiritual war that we're in? Mm -hmm. And one of the points in uh, that kind of thinking is in any battle or in any war, there's what's called the decisive point. And a decisive point is a place in the line or a place in the battle or a moment in the battle that is simultaneously strategic and feasible, right? It, mm -hmm. it really matters if you take it and it's possible to take, right? So a target, evangelistically speaking, a target could be strategic, but not feasible. New York City, for example. Yeah. If we took New York for Jesus, it'd be all over, <laughs> right? It's strategic, but not feasible. Yeah. Um, we could take Elk River, Idaho for Jesus in a weekend. <laughs> just however long it took to unload the moving vans. Um, but when we're, when it was all done, it, uh, all we'd have is Elk River and it would be feasible, but not strategic. Yeah. So my father decided that in the American system, uh, the decisive points, evangelistically speaking, were major universities in small towns. Sm the small town made it feasible and the university made it important. Mm -hmm. And he then found out through a series of circumstances that Moscow, Idaho, and Pullman, Washington were two small towns, eight miles apart, with a major university in each one, mm -hmm. Washington State and University of Idaho. Yeah. And so he moved there in order to have a disproportionate impact. Yeah. Th that was the whole idea, mm -hmm. is disproportionate impact. And everything that's coming out of Moscow is all downstream from that decision of his yeah. Whether it's Cannon Press or New St. Andrews College or Logos School or uh, Christ Church or the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches that 
came out, you know, originated there, uh, ACCS, Association of Classical Christian Schools. Um, There's a a lot bubbling up, and it's gone everywhere. But it was basically, how can you get the biggest bang for your buck? Yeah. And I think it had to do with the selection of that strategic location and and the ongoing application of the principles of war. Mm -hmm. So, for example, using media podcasts this is a good example of the application of mobility yeah right so uh the digital revolution has made it possible for us to get the word to new zealand mm-hmm. with a click yeah right yeah so um how has that project generally speaking been been going and, I, and this is kind of a leading question because i've i've been out there and it's very interesting that that main strip you know mm-hmm. most of the businesses are owned by church members you've got the the Canon Press building, you've got New St. Andrews, you've got the the theater, you know, that yeah, um, yeah. Christchurch has been in. Um, what has been the progress over the last, you know, few decades that you've been out there? Well, it's been um, it, it's been quite striking. Every, every time I felt for years, and this is <laughs> I felt for years like we were ratcheting up to the top of a roller coaster, you know. And I think, okay, brace for this. (laughs) It's going to be a wild ride. But then, um, and then exciting and exhilarating things happen. But I still feel that way. Like I'm, I I still feel like, okay, we're still building. It's not, we've not hit a crescendo Mm -hmm. yet. Yet. Um, The basic, the basic setup or lay of the land has been as soon as we got big enough to be noticed by the local i call them intoleristas there's um there's the hard left intolerista group then there's the typical residents who don't have a, a dog in the fight really and then there is the the growing community of kirkers we call them mm-hmm. um so right now uh our the kirker community is about 10 percent of the whole population wow the the intolerista wing is still agitated and angry but still pretty small because they aren't having kids they're you know they they, they're sort of at the tail end of what their worldview uh, demands yeah and then you've got the people in the middle who a number of whom believe the things are said about us but we've been under embargo for by I would call the big Eva type, big Eva and big Eva types. We've been under embargo for a long time where you don't retweet that guy or don't, yeah, you know, re- you can read him, but it's got to be under the covers of the flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've, we've had that, um, for some decade, years, decades. And in the last two or three years, what's happened is the embargo has, um, busted has has broken because the establishment conservatives establishment evangelical conservatives have largely discredited themselves because mm-hmm. of lockdown covid and um uh, uh rolling over for blm stuff and you know just it's just a lot of things where a lot a lot of christians rank and file pew sitters came to the conclusion our leadership is not where we thought they were mm-hmm we assumed that things were sound because we looked at the statement of faith. But when the, when the pinch point came, a, a lot of uh, a lot of ministries folded like a cheap card table. Yeah, and and so consequently, a lot of people started hunting around for 
an alternative voice or leadership or who can who's speaking for me and a, and a lot of people found out about moscow um during lockdown during COVID. yeah yeah we have uh even several members in our congregation in martinsburg which is two hours from here that ended up attending ultimately moving and becoming members of our church because we were the closest place to dc that didn't require masks okay. and it was like it was like two hours yeah. two hours away um i think i think you're right this was a this was a huge um you know i certainly started seeing uh, a lot more of of y'all's stuff um as soon as COVID hit lockdowns mm -hmm. were happening in churches and it was it was kind of exactly like you've said you know you were embargoed and as soon as you were um standing up against the the lockdowns and the mm -hmm. masking and everything um everyone was like well I guess somebody's got to say it, you know, we, yeah. uh, we're, we're going to start um, listening to this guy. I'm, I'm curious if you could give uh, a bit of a, of a history of y'all's resistance to um, a lot of the, the COVID regulations, not just in Moscow, but, but federally. And then uh, the reason that I'm asking that in particular is because um, I want to know more about what the roadmap is for other towns that, right. that may be, um, you know, tactical or, or ripe for, for takeover um, and build a roadmap for how small towns um, and even states mm -hmm. can do the same thing. Sure. Um, uh, I need to set the um, backdrop for a, a moment. I'm, I'm an advocate of liberty, but I'm not an ideological libertarian. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's, it's Christ first and liberty is a derivative of that, not liberty as the guiding uh, liberty is a bad idol mm -hmm. because it will it, it she will betray you um but christ sets people sets people free because i'm not an ideological libertarian when the when the panic first hit uh and and because i'm uh i believe that um the biblical law should be the pattern or the template that we uh, recognize and follow um I don't believe that quarantining is necessarily tyrannical. Mm -hmm. If the if the Black Plague broke out in a small town near Moscow, I think the sheriff has every right to cordon the town off and, yeah. <laughs> and say nobody comes out. Uh, and I don't think that that's tyranny. Yeah. So um, with that as my operating assumption, when the panic first hit and the lockdown was declared, um, we at Christchurch we ha we held um, online services for three weeks, okay? Because our nobody knew anything about, you know, nobody knew anything about this. But after three weeks, it was pretty. It was becoming apparent that, that something fishy was happening, mm -hmm. and that we were being played, and this was a panic. So, and and claims were being made about jurisdiction over worship and that sort of thing that we didn't want to submit to. So uh, we went back to in-person worship um, on the fourth week, uh, not requiring masks or anything like mm -hmm. that. Um, so, and I'm, I'm very grateful actually that we did that for three weeks because um, if our church met down below the dam and, and some public health official came and said, the dam's about to break, you need to evacuate, even though you're in the middle of the church service. I wouldn't ask, are the dam inspectors born again? Or the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would say if forest fires, volcanic eruptions, lava flows, 
Those are things uh, you want to know about. I, I want to know about. <laughs> and if the fire chief says the, your church's roof is on fire, mm-hmm. right, um, I don't have any problem evacuating. But if it's been a month now and the roof never seems to be burning and he keeps try, trying the same trick, well, we said, okay, that's that's enough. So we started to push back and resist um, uh, in week four. And and the and as we got into it it was it became very apparent that it was a panic because our little town was very not affected by mm-hmm. uh covid and everybody was acting like it was the spanish influenza and it just it just wasn't yeah and so uh the so we were not complying from very early on uh but i was grateful that we had done that for three weeks because it demonstrated we're not scoff laws in principle mm-hmm. right we um there are but there's a difference between locking down a town that's got the black death in it and locking down everybody in biblical law the quarantining authority is of the contagious of the diseased of the, mm-hmm. the of the people who have the problem you don't quarantine everybody yeah <laughs> all right that's that's overreach and so uh, one thing led to another, and the city council tried to um, tighten the screws and extend the masking order. And so we organized a psalm sing protest at City Hall. Um, a couple hundred people came, and uh, and three of our people were arrested mm-hmm. uh, by the cops for singing outside. For singing outside, <laughs> <laughs> and and what we were doing was the ordinance that they extended. Uh, allowed for ex- exceptions of religious services and protests yeah. and ours was both yeah right uh but three people got arrested anyway and then there was an uproar about that uh it hit the cable news fox and stuff and uh, president then uh, president trump retweeted uh, news of it it yeah. sort of made a big cannonball splash and then so we a few days later organized another psalm sing. We did it. We did it again, mm-hmm. and this time like five hundred people from the church uh, came, and it was really um, striking, inspiring because there were moms who were making babysitting arrangements in case they got arrested. Yeah, you know we're 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 going to do this again. So, a couple hundred people the first time, five hundred people the second time. Surely they don't have five hundred pairs of handcuffs in <laughs> Moscow. <laughs> sure, <laughs> yes, it would it would overwhelm the system. So uh, that sort of established um, us as uh, stateside as uh, res- as actively resisting. Um, in Canada, things were farther had gone farther, gone down the road farther, and so when some of their pastors were arrested and were they were having a showdown at a higher level, mm-hmm. um, but we were sort of in the spotlight as resistors, active resistors, yeah. and, and a lot of people started listening to us as a result. Yeah. So thinking about um, you know zooming out from even even COVID, um, showed things like um, you know doing a psalm sing outside of uh, an abortion clinic or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when the authorities try to shut things like that down, try to shut worship down, peaceful protests down, um, what is the the roadmap for, you know, small towns and, and again, even states? Um, is it just 
saying no? Is 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 there well, more to it than that? It's, it's saying no. It, and I would remind everybody of this in in the American system, local politics counts for way more than you think, mm-hmm. um, because. Uh, when you vote for your congressman, you vote for your senator, you vote for the president, but it all seems, for most of America, it seems very distant and far away. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the problems on the Potomac are huge, gargantuan. I don't even want to begin to think about it. Mm-hmm. But you, if you live in Heartland, America, the chances are pretty good that the sheriff is someone you went to elementary school with. Yeah. Right. Uh, and you go way back and you, you, you know each other in different settings and so consequently if the people get their back up and say this is not no let's think about it no yeah um it's it's a real challenge to um for the local authorities to clamp down in that situation because you know them they know you Mm -hmm. right it's a um it's far more uh, adaptable far more influenceable Mm-hmm. than the na- national political scene is. Yeah. I'm I'm very interested in um you know, I think a lot of people think about you as a as a, you know, a pastor, a builder of things, a a, a theologian. Um but something that I've been particularly interested in is your is your thoughts on um, you know, political theory and, and tactics. Yeah. Um uh I think I think there's um a lot of particularly good things there uh, that that you know not a lot of not a lot of people see uh, or, or read about, and I'm I'm curious to hear more about. Um, and you may not think you've had one, but I'm curious to hear about your your ideological evolution over time. You know, okay. you were talking about um, you know uh, not being an ideological libertarian. Um, I think a, a lot of people probably think that that is what you are or or mm-hmm. were. Um, I'm curious to hear more about your ideological evolution, um, wh- sure. what what you were reading, the things going on in the country. I I, I certainly think that um, you've always had quite a bit of bite in your in your writings, <laughs> but I certainly think uh, it's it's more so now. Um, so tell us about about that. Have you how, had? How did all that happen? Yeah. So um, I grew up in conservative North American evangelicalism. My parents were God-fearing evangelicals, very consistent Christians, uh, theologically conservative, and I never, I, I, they validated everything that they believed. They lived it out, and so there was never any question in my mind about the truth and veracity of the faith I'd been brought up in. Mm-hmm. I was just very comfortable there. So I was conservative theologically. Okay, that was sort of the baseline. Uh, uh, starting point. Uh, but also being a North American evangelical, uh, things were pretty fragmented. In other words, there wasn't an integrated worldview component to it. Mm-hmm. And when I was in high school, as a result of a number of circumstances, I uh, stumbled across William Buckley's book, Up from Liberalism, mm-hmm. and read it. And Buckley made an immediate conquest of me uh, mm-hmm. because largely because he was having fun. Yeah. Right. Um, he was he had principles that were contrarian to the uh, established um, liberal consensus. He was a wordsmith and he was having a good time. Mm-hmm. And it was like and again, having grown up in evangelical circles where there's a pious caste 
over every form of writing, you know, missionary newsletters, everything's written by a committee with mm-hmm. pious jargon. And it was not interesting. It was not interesting. It didn't have grip. But Buckley was an interesting writer. Mm-hmm. And so I, in high school, I subscribed to National Review, started getting that. Well, that that sort of established me in my conservative orient. I was dispositionally conservative, already theologically conservative, but I had this other track going, sort of mm-hmm. political NR type of conservatism. And by NR, I mean NR in the 1970s, not NR. That's going to be, I'm going to have a follow-up <laughs> question about that. Yeah, not NR now. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I discontinued um, my subscription to NR um, a year or two ago. And it, it's just sad what's yeah. sad what's happened. But in the seventies, they really were robustly against the regime, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I had that track going, mm-hmm. and I began attempting to reconcile those theological conservatism and political conservatism, probably in nineteen eighty with the uh, election of Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the late seventies, I started reading Francis Schaeffer and began and, and became acquainted with worldview Christian worldview thinking. Mm-hmm. How should we then live um, applying um, the gospel to everything? Uh, was probably um, began through Schaeffer, uh, and I wouldn't call it I wouldn't call it this at the time, but it was um, Kuyperian thinking where. Mm-hmm. The Lordship of Christ applies to every aspect of life. So that was, Schaefer was my gateway drug. And so fa- skipping, skipping, skipping over yeah. through, the, through the 80s, um, I would say my political philosophy is an amalgam of influences. Um, it would be um, things like Schaefer's influence. I read a boatload of the Reconstructionists during the 1980s mm-hmm. um, and they, and was influenced theologically and politically um, by them. Um, I had a, a major influence uh, in my thinking was George Gilder. Mm-hmm. We, uh, Canon Press just released a documentary about George Gilder. Um, and, and I would say that I'm a, uh, I'm a libertarian when it comes to what people ought to be allowed to do when they're manufacturing and selling and distributing widgets, mm-hmm. you know, if they're um, so, I'm a, I'm a free market guy. I believe free grace leads to free men, leads to free markets. But free markets are uh, the freedom there is not an absolute mm-hmm. because um, market forces dictate the price of co- cocaine. Yeah, market forces dictate the price of child porn, mm-hmm. um, and you can't just th- throw it out there and say let let the market decide. Um, Adam Smith's invisible hand has to be attached to somebody, mm-hmm. and and that somebody is the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, I don't want to absolutize market forces, yeah. but I do want to say out of every lawful pursuit, farming, selling groceries, manufacturing things, people ought to be able to uh, make, you know, um, make what they want to and sell what they want to at the price they want to and, and not yeah. be regulated to death. So I'm there's a strong component of classical liberalism uh, in there, but not secular 
liberalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, if you put it all together, I've called myself a theocratic libertarian, Mm -hmm. right? God's law is supreme. God's word is supreme. Um, I'm not an ideological libertarian because one one of the things that ideological libertarianism cannot do is it cannot defend itself, Mm -hmm. right? The individual free willer up against the Borg collective is going to lose, mm-hmm. right? He's just going to lose. And that's why, that's why the collective wants a nation of fornicating potheads uh, because uh, John Adams said that our constitution presupposes a moral and a religious people. Mm-hmm. He said it is wholly unfit for any other. So unless the people are virtuous, right? yeah. unless the people are virtuous, uh, it's not possible to have a constitutional republic. Mm-hmm. So I'm... Um- Curious about the, um, you know, your your transition from, let's call it like the the Bush era and conservatism to now, you know, the the Trump era of conservatism. You had this, um, uh, you know, neoconservative movement that was like nominally socially conservative. I think is the is is the way that you could put it. Lots of promises. Um, yeah, lots lots of promises. Um, you had the foreign wars, obviously. You have the. Um, offshoring of American jobs, manufacturing, um, uh, that sort of thing. And, and those are things that were um, promulgated by a lot of these like, oh, well, you know, it's a it's a it's a free market. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how has how your thinking kind of evolved on? Um, I know that's kind of a, a broad question, but between, you know, economics as particularly thinking about American jobs and manufacturing, um, immigration foreign policy social issues etc because yeah. the 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 bushes versus trump and now like kind of the trump wing have very yeah. ideologically different views sure. on that sure um so when i look at things like um, companies um um building plants in mexico or you know i mean china uh, is the predominant example but, china is now yeah but um when I look at companies doing that, the first thing that I want to ask is who in charge here chased them there? I, you know, if, mm-hmm. if you had, um, in 1950, um, the ni- in 1950, the most prosperous city in North America was Detroit. Mm. Okay. And the most prosperous city in Latin America was Havana. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, I believe that things uh, you, you have forces at work which disincentivized corporations to for working with the local authorities, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, laws about unions, laws about you know right to work issues, uh, uh, taxes, regulation, that sort of thing. So I would I would much prefer uh, sort of a Jack Kemp approach to enterprise zones. To keep mm-hmm. companies from f- fleeing, yeah. than the iron hand of "Thou shalt not." Yeah, right. So the, the passing a law that says General Motors can't go mm-hmm. here, I think, is going to be fut- futile and counterproductive, and set you up for um, a lot of antagonism. Yeah. Um, so I would much prefer to <laughs> reduce taxes to a sane level, mm-hmm. reduce regulations to a sane level, and stop. Um, stop incentivizing corporations to deal elsewhere. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? So um, now, have, having said that, the the populist uh, the populist uprising mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that that uh, is not led by Trump, but which Trump represents, mm. is um, is a revolt that is not is not coming from nowhere. It doesn't arise from nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, it and when you look at uh, Oliver Anthony's recent song "Richmond North of Richmond," yeah, and how much traction that got overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody uh, has to come to grips with the fact that our coastal elites have been swanking around <laughs> for a long time and thinking they're better than flyover country. And mm-hmm. we and we even have phrases like that. Yeah. Uh, flyover country. Fly, yeah. Flyover country where all the boobs are, you know, mm-hmm. and just don't say anything to get the chimps jumping. And <laughs> well, they finally got to the point where the chimps got to jumping. Yeah. And and now they're they're saying what's happened to all our, all our norms. No, you guys I, I would say the it was the ruling elites that are I would lay the I would lay the responsibility for this angry revolt entirely at mm-hmm. the at the feet of the people who want to run everybody's lives for them. Yeah. Um, so um I'd go back to a comment William Buckley said, if you're taking a shower, a liberal is a person who reaches in and adjusts the heat for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, uh, tell me more about like specifically on, um, you know, foreign policy and, and, and immigration. Like again, certainly most conservatives were in a completely different place in 2005 than they are now. Right. Um, how, how have your views evolved on, on those issues okay so um i would say the uh i think what i'm about to say i would have always agreed with mm-hmm. but i think that the the roster of failed uh foreign adventurous wars has given me more to argue with mm-hmm. okay <clears throat> um, so for example i i would be entirely hostile to nation building, mm-hmm. um, you know, where we're going to go and turn Afghanistan into a Jeffersonian democracy. Yeah. The answer to that is no, you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to turn Iraq into a Jeffersonian democracy. You're not going to. Uh, constitutions are pieces of paper mm-hmm. and you can't just impose um, impose them on a people. Um, so the the post-World War Two um, secular jihad. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there was a failed attempt. Woodrow Wilson wanted to make the world safe for democracy. Um, and, he, but he was shot down on the league of nations. And then after world war two, uh, the United nations sort of instantiated the, this desire again, that we're going to, we're going to export, uh, the American way we're going to export, uh, democracy. And that has embroiled us in a series of, um, fruitless wars that I, I just don't uh, not a fan yeah okay not a fan now I, I at the same time I'm not at all averse to a strong military um, but I want the strong military to be used intelligently and if there's a war it should be short in order to preserve American interests and then we get out again yeah yeah you you um, you attack the Somali pirates, and then then you come home. Yeah, you, and you don't you don't try to um, 
adopt a secularist version of the Great Commission, right. uh, where you're, it's not our job to make the world America. Yeah. Yeah. Here, uh, Somali pirates, you should read this Adam Smith. You would understand uh, so much, so much better if you read this. Um, I, you brought up uh, National Review uh, a couple minutes ago, and I'm, I'm very interested in that topic. We had a, uh, the former Attorney General Jeff Sessions gave a fellowship lecture a couple weeks ago uh, to our, well, I guess it was like a month and a half ago, but um, to our, uh, to our fellows over, over the summer, and he was talking about. Um, he had a, a teacher in high school that recommended that he um, subscribe to the National Review. And so that was kind of how he uh, got involved in um, conservative politics. But he shares a, a, a similar thought to you that they're no longer doing. Uh, they're mm -hmm. not sending their best. <laughs> we'll, we'll, Correct. We'll put it that way. There are people there are people in that orbit that I still like. Mm -hmm. Right. There's some good people there. But. They don't have the editorial discipline and worldview to hold it all right. uh, to hold it all together, mm -hmm. and and so uh, I could read. You know, somebody might still write for NR, and he might read write a book that I really want to read. Yeah, but I don't want to read the editorial line mm -hmm. anymore. And do you think the thing I'm most interested in here is do you do you think you left them or they left you? Oh, they left me. <laughs> so you think they've changed a lot? Oh, over time. they they absolutely have. Um, so, uh, uh, Cotton Mather once said, "Faithfulness begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother." Mm -hmm. Okay, so what? Or in Deuteronomy, Jeshuan waxed fat and kicked. Yeah, uh, you you get um, you you get, gain respectability, right? Mm -hmm. When you when you first start out. The the initial issue of NR famously said, "We want to stand athwart history, mm -hmm. yelling no or mm -hmm. stop." Yeah, right. They're not doing that anymore. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, somebody one wit said that if the Democrats proposed burning down the Capitol, the Republicans would counter with a plan to do it over three years. <laughs> right. Um, the Democrats want to drive toward the cliff at eighty miles an hour, and um, Republicans want to go fifty. Mm -hmm. um, but nobody, nobody wants to actually stop and turn around and do something entirely different. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, there are parts of Trump's uh, agenda that I don't like at all. But to his credit, he did want to do something different. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that's why he's an enemy of the state, uh, because he he didn't want to go down the approved course. Mm -hmm. And uh, if and and so consequently, uh, there all the all the long knives are out because he's disruptive of the of the uniparty. Mm -hmm. That that's the that's his main crime yeah. is that he's he's disrupting the uniparty and he's and he's revealing the controlled opposition for for what it is. Yeah. So what do you think about um, institutions generally on the, on the right or the left? Um, and the sort of metrics that make them ripe for takeover and right. and and also like how you do that, how you can take something like, say, we took NR as an example, um, you know, you wanted to uh, reform it to um, be like it used to be or or how we are now kind of bring them back to center. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think about something like that and how do you do it? OK, so this is a, a very important um, 
point to emphasize. One of the one of the things that conservatives and, and Christians especially can't copy the progressive playbook on this because they get to be dishonest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they can wheedle their way into seminaries and lie. Mm-hmm. They can get into publishing houses and lie. They, they can sign statements of faith that they don't mean. And conservatives want to go to heaven when they die. You know, they, 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 they don't want to lie, cheat, and steal. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, anything that we do has to be done in a way that's clever but honest. Yeah. Right, so um, I would say there are, there are times when an institution might be just getting on in years and is kind of decrepit right mm-hmm. um and so some people start coming fr- fresh blood they've got young ideas and the old timers are too tired to you know to fight and there's a yeah. takeover that way another uh a, a way is and what one of the things we've done in moscow is we have we have started a number of alternative institutions mm-hmm. uh, we we've built we we have built uh, a significant parallel economy but the parallel economy is not necessarily one that you intend to run in, in parallel tracks for the next 50 years mm-hmm. one of the things that a parallel economy does is it introduces competition into the system and if the competition starts to wane right they they might go under and then there you, you've taken over the space yeah or they might admit defeat and you acquire them mm-hmm. right so um so, so if you have um let's say you, chatting beforehand what is fox news redeemable mm-hmm. well left to their own devices no yeah but let's say someone starts a uh, uh, conservative news network that is what fox used to be mm-hmm Okay, and let's say it gains traction and it's head for head, um, you know, keeping pace with Fox. It's conceivable that you could have some sort of uh, corporate merger takeover, you know, and Fox be brought back into the family. A a little uh, inkling of this would be um, who would have imagined 20 years ago that Tucker Carlson would upstage a presidential debate, mm-hmm. right? So what you're basically saying is that something that is operating on the level of a podcast yeah, right, um, um, is, has taken on um, the sort of the establishment media and buried them mm-hmm. as far as number the numbers are concerned. All right, so at some point, uh, what Tucker's doing is going to have to be institutionalized yeah right and when it's institutionalized what might it acquire right right uh so um i don't think you can have parallel economy forever i think it's uh, it's a competition and at some point someone's going to fold or someone's going to be acquired or admit defeat or or be or they will become the loyal opposition well i think so frequently (laughs) Um, you know, people, when they're thinking about this, they, they say we need to start the conservative X or conservative Y or, or whatever. Like, I think a good example here is like, 
like social media companies. Mm-hmm. Like we need we need to start a, a conservative social media platform right. that inevitably, you know, does not get a lot of reach. And I think you have this with with products to, you know, um, certain kinds of like, I guess there's this new like non woke beer out there that's supposed to be like, yeah, yeah. like against Bud Light or whatever. Or, or Liberty Safe. Um, this, uh, I saw advertisements for, yeah, uh, they, they turned over codes to the feds and okay, now another safe company taking an opportunity. Yeah. Um, okay. Maybe, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm, what I'm curious about and, and, and why I'm particularly curious about this is because you guys have done this so well out in out in moscow um what what is kind of like the the line of when it's best to take something over versus starting something new okay so um at, when we started when we were doing our our thing we were not uh, taking over was not a thought in our minds mm-hmm. okay uh what we wanted to do was simply be left alone we wanted to educate our own children uh, the first al- the first alternative thing we started was logos school mm-hmm. and in a town our size logos has got like 650 students in it this year which for a town our size for a private christian school yeah. is, is enormous and we we are in effect a parallel school system about a third of the school ch- school age school children in moscow about a third of them are receiving a private christian education Hmm. and i think we're just a few years away from the government school system dipping below 50 percent which i I hope to see that before i go to heaven Um, (laughs) where the government school system is the minority form of education yeah but we didn't we didn't do start it in order to take them on but in the providence of god that's sort of what started to happen, and because that the our our competition here is a government entity, not a free market entity. If it was a restaurant, the the secular restaurant might close down, mm-hmm. but the government school system is supported by the taxpayer and a lot yeah. of momentum behind it. So even if it dwindles down to next to nothing, it's still going to be there, mm-hmm. right? So. Uh, what we were doing is simply tending to our own knitting, minding our, uh, what has God called us to do. Uh, we don't want to turn our children over. We want to educate them in the Lord. Mm-hmm. But as kids have grown up under that system, uh, and they and we emphasize the covenant and extended family, and kids marry and they want to stay in Moscow. They want to make a living there. They have to make a living like everybody else does. But because of the worldview Christianity that we inculcate, they value entrepreneurship, uh, aggressiveness, uh, industry, creativity. And so a number of them started their own businesses and and are just very um, active. Yeah. And so our people have to make a living just like all the people in the other churches have to make a living. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's nothing unusual in the system. So... Uh, when Kirkers, uh, the nickname for us is Kirkers. Um, that's a long story, but Christ Church and the Scottish word for church is Kirk. Mm-hmm. And in the early days of internet stuff, Christchurch.com was too long. And so, <laughs> so we shortened it to Christ Kirk and Kirkers. I, yeah. And I, I named us that because if you don't name it, somebody else will. Yeah. And, and so, um, so the, our, our Kirker community is, um, let's say you're running a, uh, someone starts a restaurant. Um, uh, I don't run it. 
I don't own it. The board of elders doesn't control anything. It's not a, it's not a thing Mm -hmm. that the church is doing. It's a thing that people in the church, members of the church are doing operating out of a shared worldview. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is there's an important point to be made here is I distinguish uh, theologically, I distinguish church and kingdom. So if you think of a medieval town, the church is the at the center of the town, uh, proclamation of the word and administration of the sacraments. The church is word and sacrament. And in the medieval town all around, the bakeries and the bicycle repair shops and the software companies and everything that's all in the kingdom Mm -hmm. but it's not controlled by the elders it's not controlled by the church the the people who run these shops acknowledge christ and they come and worship every lord's day and they're taught to think in a biblical worldview they're taught to behave like christians work hard like christians be honest and above board like christians and then they're sent back out into the town so a lot of what people are seeing in moscow is not church work but kingdom work yeah right and and i don't run it i i've i'm i have influence on it but i'm not in control of it i don't go to board meetings i don't see spreadsheets i you know Mm -hmm. it's just the it's just the people of god doing their thing then there are certain things that i do have a voice on you know i'm I'm on the board of logos school and and so forth things that we started Mm -hmm. but uh, a lot of what's going on, I just watch and I'm amazed. Yeah. It seems to me like the answer here is um, actually provide, like if you were to, uh, you know, use a business term for this, like provide an actual good product. Yeah. Like your focus does not need to be on making conservative chocolate bars or whatever. It's like, yeah. it's, I actually want to make the best product. Yeah. Martin Luther said that if you want to be a Christian cobbler, you don't make shoes with little crosses on them. Yeah. <laughs> right. You make good shoes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Period. That's it. Um, so uh, I, I'm curious, you know, we have we have a lot of uh, uh, listeners on this podcast and not all of them, um, you know, actually, most of them are probably Catholics. Um, but but we do have, you know, listeners who are who are not uh, Christians, but um, are conservatives and desire, you know, to have a conservative distinctly American uh, culture, which is, you know, heavily influenced by uh, our Christian history. What do you think non-Christians should be doing um, today to build that kind of culture? Okay. okay. So uh, for those non-Christians who are watching this, and I understand they reside in that camera, (laughs) (laughs) I would say to you, non-Christians, you can't have the fruit and not have the orchard. Mm. Um, you you can't. Uh, uh, this goes back to C.S. Lewis's famous quote in *Abolition of Man*: "We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. Yeah. Um, we remove the organ and demand the function. Um, it's just you, you can't." Um, I go back to John Adams' quote: "Our Constitution presupposes a moral and religious people. Uh, it is wholly unfit for any other." So basically, uh, the Lord Jesus taught us that uh, a house that you, you could have two houses side by side. And one has better curb appeal. They did mm-hmm. a better paint job, everything, but it doesn't have a foundation. Yeah. Right. And and the difference between the two houses is revealed in the storm. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've gone through the last three years. We've um we've we've gone through a storm and a lot of houses that had a lot of conservative curb appeal have collapsed. Mm-hmm. 
right? And since I'm one who believes the storm season is not over yet, I think we're going to have other hurricanes making landfall. I, yeah. I think we need to we need to come to grips with the fact that it's that you, there's a binary choice here. I would say it's Christ or chaos. And um, if you're a non-believer and everything's about to uh, hit the fan, mm-hmm. if you say, "Well, okay, I don't want to repent and believe. I don't want to be baptized. But what do I do in the meantime?" I would say you should move to where a bunch of people have repented and believed. <laughs> you, sh- you because you're going to want to be around the nice people. Yeah, you're you're going to want to be around the people who care about liberty, who care about liberty of conscience, and that would include yours, mm-hmm. right? They're not going to they're not going to not going to string you up because you're an unbeliever. Don't believe yeah. the don't believe the propaganda from the other side. The other side is far more intolerant than um, believers are. Uh, liberty of conscience and religious liberty was a Christian invention, mm-hmm. right? It's something we hammered out. So. Uh, for us to uh, be accused by the secularists of, yeah, if if you Christian nationalists, if you theonomists, if you theocrats get your way, then it's red dresses for all the women, and you know, yeah. <laughs> um, I'd say, come on, give me a break. Um, you're the ones who are shutting speech down. You're the ones who are getting people fired from their jobs for their opinions. Yeah, you're, you're the ones who are uh, hammering people because they they're not operating in lockstep with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, don't accuse the people who invented liberty of conscience and developed it over a period of many uh, decades and centuries even. Yeah. Don't accuse them of wanting to throw that away. Yeah, there's, um, I think a lot of the the good influence in the conservative movement over the last, um, you know, I've really been active in, in politics in the last decade. Um, and a lot of the, the good influence has been... Um, put forward by mostly Catholic uh, conservatives, mm-hmm. which is, um, and again, God bless him for it. Like it's yeah. great stuff. We, we need it. You yeah. know, um, uh, we wouldn't have the, the victory in the Dobbs case if we didn't have Catholics, you know, Catholic Supreme court justices. Um, so I don't want that to be misconstrued as like, Oh, yeah. this is, you know, something we got to be worried about. The, the, the thing I'm in particular wanting to get at is um, why it's not, Protestants, why it's not like general run-of-the-mill Christians. Uh, it seems to me there's kind of a two, a two, you know, step trap here. In that, in that one, you know, uh, Christians seem to be generally averse to wielding authority, um, particularly in government. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two, you know, when they attempt to do so, it's usually not effective. Right. Um, why do you think that is? So um, let me rewind and go back to the 19th century when the Catholic immigration started in earnest, when the Catholics started to immigrate here in earnest, um, America was overwhelmingly Protestant and evangelical uh, in its founding. But in the 19th century, many um, like the waves of immigrants from Ireland and other places, uh, uh, the Catholic infusion became significant at that time when the Catholics developed their parochial school system. They developed their parochial school system not because the government school system was secular. Mm-hmm. They developed it because the, Protest- the government school system was Protestant and evangelical, right? So to this day, uh, a lot of Protestants think of the government schools as our schools, quote unquote, our schools. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, R.L. Dabney said at the in the end of the 19th century, 
Christians must prepare themselves for the following results. All Bibles, catechisms, and prayers will ultimately be driven out of the schools. Yeah. And we look at that and say, there are catechisms in the schools? Yeah. That was uh, on secular education, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So um, so the, the government school system had a Protestant Bible, King James Bible. They had Protestant catechisms and Protestant prayers, not to marry, not to, you know. Yeah. All right. So um, the there was a there was a trap there was a trick there because the intellectual energy for the establishment of the school system was unitarian mm -hmm. but on the ground local school boards local schools were overwhelmingly dominated by evangelical protestants mm -hmm. so um pr protestants have gotten it into their dna that protestant values are woven into what constitutes being an american yeah Okay, now the secular trap was sprung. the The Catholics came and they said we can't be part of that. They started a parochial school system that was distinctively Catholic, over against the Protestant government mm -hmm. school system. The Protestants were lazy, got you know, took things for granted, thought that everything was by and large okay, and then the secularist um, cancer metastatized and came to fruition over the in my lifetime basically yeah and such that such that the government school system today is unrecognizable off the cliff right out of the sodom and gomorrah mm -hmm. stuff and a, a lot of protestants have sort of gone jeepers now uh, something i learned from my dad is always act never react mm -hmm. now i think that there are millions of conservative evangelical protestants who would be willing to be politically and culturally engaged but they are like sheep without a shepherd the the uh and paul says when the bugle blows indistinctly who gets ready for battle mm -hmm. and, and you can see this in different way um uh, in different waves so for example um in the 70s uh you had the moral majority uh with uh, uh figures like jerry falwell senior and Francis Schaeffer was sort of the brains behind the the whole thing. There was this, there was a significant Protestant evangelical movement at that time that large. It was Francis Schaeffer that basically pulled evangelicals into the pro life wing, mm -hmm. the pro life camp. Um, and it's true that the Roman Catholic thinkers, Supreme Court justices, are Roman Catholics, but it was evangelicals who elected the presidents who nominated those people. Yeah. Right. So if you take if you take the evangelical voting block out, we're gone already. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, now at the same time, I, I believe that there's this big um, <laughs> untapped resource because there are um, evangelicals who over the last generation have had deceitful shepherds, mm -hmm. uh, people who basically uh, liberals and progressives know how to go for the lymph nodes. They, they, they get into positions of influence and power and they know how to operate the levers under the desks. They love headquarters of all every, every, every kind. Mm -hmm. They love committees. They, you know, so what's, what's happened was uh, I would say there have been resurgent conservative movements of evangelicals into politics and uh, um, cultural affairs by the million 
but we are consistently outmaneuvered. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think that the, in my lifetime, that's happened two or three times where some promising movement of cultural engagement, finally, this is going to happen. And then everybody flakes. Yeah. The leadership flakes. Yeah. So as a, a final question, um, I think one of the areas where both Protestants and Catholics have wielded a lot of influence um, in D.C., and I think in probably the the wrong direction, has been on immigration in yeah. particular, um, both legal and illegal. You have a lot of, um, you know, charities, nonprofits, lobbying groups that seek to basically get as many foreigners into America as possible, whether that's um, at the border providing um, housing, encouraging them in this illegal mm -hmm. activity, um, or drastically, you know, increasing the amount of, of legal uh, immigrants every year. And this is, this is super, like, tens of millions of dollars goes yeah. goes into this every year. So we're hosting an event uh, with with you uh, and a couple others this this evening, um, which will be last week by the time people listen yeah. to this. Um, but uh, the the topic is the Christian case for immigration restriction, how you can basically be a Christian and be for, um, you know, reducing the amount of immigrants legal and illegal we have um, into the United States every year. Um, give us a brief rundown of of what you're going to say tonight okay so uh, one of the illustrations i'm going to use tonight is let's say there's a christian couple um who are particularly gifted in dealing with foster children loving foster children and they have three foster kids mm -hmm. okay and they're just they're just good at it and let's say that the their local town council follows the uh, imperative of to tell a tolerance out to the end mm -hmm. and social workers show up one day at this couple's house with 28 new foster kids yeah. that they impose on the family. Okay. And then, and then let's say five squatter kids from the neighborhood join, in. Yeah. <laughs> join in. So it's 33. So now the, and the father complains and Russell Moore uh, writes an op-ed for the New York times <laughs> saying that Christian, Christian parents really need to get over their hostility to foster children. Yeah. Okay. Because the way of love, the way of Christ is to take in foster children. Mm -hmm. uh, and the dad protests. He said, before I was loving three foster children. Mm -hmm. Now I'm dealing with 36 yeah. I'm not, and I'm not loving anybody. Right? right. Don't, don't talk to me about love. What you just did is you sank the boat. Mm -hmm. You, you, um, you took something that was doing some good and you made it do nothing but bad. Yeah. Right. Now, uh, so the issue is, I, I think ultimately, the issue is not are you pro-immigrant or um, anti-immigrant. The issue is whether you're pro-chaos or anti-chaos. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, I've been actively reading politics and, you know, um, and 50, 50 years ago when, when the State Department allowed or whoever it is – allows uh, a British brain surgeon to immigrate. Mm -hmm. um, nobody cared. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was not because it was not chaos. It was not chaos. Yeah. Right. Um, what we have on the southern border is deliberately fomented chaos. Mm -hmm. And and that chaos is it's either done being done through stupidity or malevolence 
or perhaps a mixture of of both. If if someone says, um, let's have lawful immigration at reasonable rates where the immigrants can fully assimilate, right? And and you don't have uh, when the dam bursts. It doesn't do any good to say this is a, an experiment, new methods of irrigation. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's not irrigation at all. Um, uh, another illustration I, I use is the chaos of our times. Is if Let's say you had a, a junior high school uh, that had a food fight in the cafeteria on Monday and another one on Thursday. And parents are concerned and they're looking into the superintendent's management of the school, they would not describe it as a meatloaf crisis or a macaroni and cheese crisis, yeah. <laughs> even though those were the dishes that were being thrown on the right. The problem is the rioting. The problem is the food fight. Yeah. Okay. The problem is the lack of discipline, the la lack of order, the lack of law. And um, we have so many pockets of chaos, uh, uh, sexual um sexual chaos with the trans and kids we have the environmentalist chaos not environmental chaos but environmentalist chaos yeah. uh, the climate cultist um, uh, people we have educate educational crisis we have all kinds of crises and the and the problem is we don't have a backbone and we don't have a backbone because we're relativists yeah and and you can't stop being a relativist by saying, wouldn't it be nice if we weren't relativists? Mm -hmm. What you have to do is say, it's Christ or chaos. It's Christ or chaos, as we're discovering. So, um, and you, I'm sorry, you put the nickel in, but here's the <laughs> here's the thing. After after World War II, when when the secular um, establishment started plumping itself, swanking around, it was possible for a secularist in Eisenhower's America to say something that had a surface plausibility, which was, we don't need reference to the transcendent. We don't need to uh, have a religious commitment. We're decent Americans. We can govern ourselves. We can govern ourselves without reference to the Almighty. Yeah. Okay. And in 1958, 1962, that had surface plausibility. Astute biblical thinkers would say it's not going to last. Mm -hmm. But at the time, you could look up and down your street and say, yeah. So, you know, still here, still here. Uh, there aren't drag queens reading at the library. Mm -hmm. There aren't 60 million dead babies. There aren't homosexual marriages being solemnized down at the county court. You know, there was none of that. So there was surface plausibility. So I would say to my secular friends, how's it going? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, we were we were um, very full of ourselves we were proud we had we had won the war we split the atom we won the war now we're not capable of splitting the boys and girls at a junior high dance mm. <laughs> we we have lost utterly lost our way we are utterly befogged and that's because relativism doesn't cut it um, and the can-do american pragmatism is hoist on its own petard pragmatism doesn't work yeah Right, it doesn't work. We we have to acknowledge that we are not enough. We are we Americans are not sufficient. Look at look at us. Look at what we're doing. Mm -hmm. I'm very much looking forward to that talk. I think it's yeah. I think it's going to be uh, great. Pastor Wilson, where can people find you? Keep okay. up with all the very important work that you're doing and learn more. Well, people who uh, for people to find me if they're not a Fed. 
<laughs> if if um, uh, the way we constructed my blog, uh, I blog at dougwills.com. And the name of the blog is Blog and May Blog. And if they go to the front page there and open up the front page and scroll down, there's a portal uh, a portal to pretty much everything I'm involved with. Yeah. Um, New St. Andrews College, ACCS, Logos School, Christchurch. So you can so if you go to my the front page of my blog, you can get to pretty much everything I'm in, in, involved with. Great. And they can access your uh, list of controversies too, oh, yeah, which yeah. I always find very entertaining. <laughs> yes, there's a drop-down menu. It's called the Controversy Library. It, it, it's actually important to say this. If you Google my name, beware. Yeah. <laughs> I've had I, I've sent many people when I've talked about you, I've sent them that page, the explanation. Yeah. Don't look them up, just read this. <laughs> yeah. The controversy library. Basically all we've had every manner of dead cat thrown at us. Yeah. And all kinds of lies. And so we've got a controversy library. If if you hear something, if you're if you're starting to read our stuff and your Aunt Millie is kind of concerned because she Googled something. Yeah. Um, the controversy library has basically a response to every one of the great controversies. You'll have to add a uh, a Rod Dreher category yeah. soon on there. Uh, yeah, probably. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, Pastor Wilson, thank you very much uh, for you. coming on the podcast yet again. Yeah. Happy to. Thank you again for listening to another fantastic episode of Moment of Truth. Once again, you can check out everything that Pastor Wilson is doing at DougWills.com. As for American Moment, you can help by rating and reviewing this podcast. Five stars only, please. Um, Jake happened to notice the other day that um, I think it was something like 80% of the people that watch on YouTube are not subscribed to this channel. You should go fix that. If you're watching this on YouTube right now, please go to our our page on YouTube and subscribe. Um, As always, you can go to americamoment.org to hear more about what we believe in, what's going on, the programs we have coming up, etc. You can fill out americamoment.org slash join if you want to get involved. Uh, As always, stay frosty and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.